1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word this day. Lord, as you open the minds of the apostles that they might understand the scriptures and you taught them all the things concerning yourself, we pray that you would be pleased to do that for us this day. And we ask this, Heavenly Father, depending upon your grace and mercy, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. This is a very familiar passage. I, I quote it a lot. There's a very important teachings here. I thought it would do us good for the next few weeks to work through the first epistle of John. This is a very wonderful book. From my studies of it and working in it and things, I'm somewhat convinced by uh, historically that this may very well have been the cover letter that accompanied John's gospel. If you read 1 John and then immediately go into the gospel of John, it really opens up a lot of things in it. So I would encourage you in your Bible reading sometime to try that. Just sit down if you have a little bit of time, and we all can make time for the things we think are important. But read through 1 John, all five chapters, and then go to John's gospel and start reading it, and, and there's such a unity and harmony in this, this epistle, I think, may possibly, and that's just my theory, okay, so we're going to leave it at that. But it definitely goes along with and enlightens us with so many truths. You could read John's Gospel first, then read First John if you wanted to, um, because they do have a close relationship by the wonderful truths that are in them. 
First John was accepted early on uh, in the church. There's no dispute. You know, some of the books had some debate about, well, should this be part of the canon of the New Testament? Second and Third John were questioned. The Epistle of Jude was sometimes questioned by some later after the Apostolic era. And that had largely to do with the fact that by the end of the first century, all of the apostles had died. Remember, we've talked about that before. John, if we can trust tradition, there seems to be a really solid historical tradition. If we want to not use that word tradition, it sometimes scares Presbyterians. We can use the word history. And there is a strong history uh, that John lived up until the close of the first century. And I pointed this out because it's important because a lot of modern liberal, quote, Christianity... Uh, is predicated upon the idea that, well, you know, once Jesus died, then it was just a lot of confusion and nobody knew what to do or anything, and things just kind of grew up, as they say, like Topsy, uh, and then the people started inventing ideas, and then they wrote the, you know, books to try to back that up. Utter foolishness. The early church had a living testimony in the Apostle John and several of the other apostles that lived long lives. So if somebody wanted to know, what are we supposed to think about this? For the first 35 or 40 years, they had the Apostle Peter in the history of the church, the, the Apostle Paul. John, they had him uh, for the better part of 70 years. And so we look at, and by the way, the area where tradition tells us, or history, uh, that where John lived was that he was in Ephesus. Also, Timothy was there and others. Um, and so if you went to Ephesus, in Ephesus, as we read the scriptures, there's an epistle, actually there's two letters, we have two epistles written to the Ephesian church. One is the book of Ephesians, and then in the book of Revelation, there's a letter written to that church a generation later. Um, and that was one of John's last things that he wrote, was the book of Revelation. That was also a disputed book. Once the last apostle died, then later, you know, people questioned, well, is that book scripture? Because they couldn't go to the apostles. Uh, but eventually the church recognized, yes, these books are scripture, and that's 1 John, 2 John, uh, Jude, and Revelation. Uh, and there's a couple of other books where there was some dispute, weren't sure, but they were all read. If you go back and read the Church Fathers, all these books are quoted in one form or another. Uh, and the church's job, by the way, you know, Rome likes to say that Rome created the Bible. You know, that Rome, like you get the idea, if you've ever listened to a Roman Catholic apologist try to defend their idea of scripture, According to Rome, well, the scripture wasn't scripture until there was a church council, and the church council decreed certain books to be scripture. And so, ipso facto, they then became inspired or something. That's just, well, I don't want to use the word hogwash because I'm a pious person and I wouldn't use that word. But if I was going to, that'd be pretty close because <laughs> the church's job is not to create scripture. The church's job is to recognize what God gave. Scripture was scripture the moment the Holy Spirit inspired the inspired writer to write it. It didn't become scripture when somebody later said, well, I declare this to be scripture. The church's job was to recognize and to receive what God gave. Remember in the Lord's Supper, what does Paul say? For I delivered unto you what? That which I also received. And then we say, well, how, did, how do we know these books in our New Testament are really scripture? Well, read them. Our confession tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts that these things are authentic. Now, some would say, well, isn't that circular reasoning? And it's like, well, I don't know. You put your hand on a hot stove. Uh, how much convincing do I have to do to tell you that that's hot? You will have experienced it. Okay? And there is some truth to that, uh, that when you read the Word of God, 
It changes you, causes you to be born again. The testimony is there. The testimony of the church historically tells us these books have been received from the earliest times. Most of the disputes on canonical books, and I'm going into this just for a moment until we will get into the text, but most of the dispute of canonical books had to do with later generations. Like the book of Revelation initially was fully received. Well, this is from the Apostle John. Uh, we love it. And then later on, because some people took the sections on the millennium and said, oh, we need to overthrow the Roman government. And then people said, whoa, we reject that book. Look at all the crazy people that are holding to it. In a later generation, because of certain things in it they didn't like, okay, or that they thought might cause trouble. But from the earliest times, they were initially received. So that's an important point. Okay, so 1 John doesn't have that problem. 1 John was received right out the bat. It's quoted by the earliest church fathers. It's always been received, uh, and it's a, a, a wonderful book. So let's look and see what John actually says here for a few moments. John writes, and he says, That which was from the beginning. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember in John 1.1, 1, 1, what are we told? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? Uh, as you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses horribly mistranslate that and try to make the Bible a polytheistic document by saying the word was a god. Uh, anybody that knows any Greek knows that that is a complete, absolute falsification. It should be translated, and the word was God, capital G. Uh, we can talk about that some other time. But J John starts his gospel in the beginning. Clearly that is reflecting Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. What does John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And apart from Him, nothing was made that has been made. So John in his Gospel, in chapter 1, the first few verses, clearly takes the person of our Lord Jesus Christ out of any idea, or away from any idea, of being a mere creature. Because he says, everything, everything that has been created was created through him. He is God. He, as it says in Colossians, he's the firstborn of every creature. And again, the cults try to go, ah, see, he's the first creature. No, that's not what that means. Firstborn in the Bible is the title you give to the one who is the inheritor of all. Remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob got the right of the firstborn. That gave him the right of inheritance. Christ has the right of inheritance. So John is telling us that the, what has been from the beginning, and then he uses very interesting uh, words here, very simple. And that's what, by the way, one of the things about John's writings in his gospel and his epistles and the book of Revelation, John can take, and he does, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, take the simplest vocabulary and set forth the most profound truths. And then you really see the Holy Spirit. These are just simple Greek words uh, in English, simple English words. And yet the truths that are there are beyond full comprehension. But God knows. That which is from the beginning. And he says, that which we have heard, now that uses the perfect tense in Greek, which means a completed action in time past with present results. So John is saying not just that, well, at, at a certain point we heard uh, this one that was from the beginning, as he says, the word of life, the word. Um, but we heard it in the past. He's talking about Jesus. But the effects of that are still with us. So we don't have that tense quite the same in English, so I have to explain it. That which we've heard, it's like uh, when Mary saw Jesus, some manuscripts, they put that when she says, I've seen the Lord. It's in the perfect. In other words, I saw him, the effects are still with me. 
you know, John saying, we heard him, and it's still fresh, it's still with us. That which we have heard, and the effects of that hearing are still current, that which we have seen, again, that's also in, in the Greek perfect tense, meaning it's a, a past action completed, they saw Jesus, but they were never the same. And John's writing this, many believe, toward the end of his life, and he's saying, that which we heard, that which we've seen, but the implication is it, the effects of that are still present. Maybe John was changed completely. And he says, um, with our eyes, he's talking about the reality of the incarnation of Jesus, uh, that which we gazed upon, that's just a, a simple historical past tense there, the eras, that which we gazed upon, and our hands handled. Again, that's uh, just a simple past tense. But he's letting them know Jesus' incarnation was real. You know, the Gnostics said, well, this world is made of mud, hair, and filth, and there can be no good in it. Anything that's physical is bad. Uh, we see that sometimes in some religions. Uh, that, you know, the world is an illusion, and everything here is kind of ugly, and so you have to get beyond the physical. And uh, that appeals to people because it sounds really deep. But the fact of the matter is God made the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and yes, it is marred by sin, but it's God's world. So John's letting us know that the incarnation of the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, was of such that he really was here. He's saying, we saw him, we heard him, our hands touched him. He was real. The word concerning the word of life, the incarnation of God, and that's what that means, you know, First Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. He said, we saw him. He's, John's writing because he wants his hearers to know this is real what we're talking about. This really happened. We've been changed by it. We're writing to you these things. That which was from the beginning. And he says, concerning the word of life. And he says, and the life was manifested. Uh, and we have seen, again, that's that perfect tense. The manifested part, simple historical tense. Uh, the perfect, we've seen it and we're changed by it. The results are still current. And bear witness, that's a present tense. We are testifying to you. We are testifying to you and announcing to you, reporting to you, declares, the new King James says, to you, eternal life. Literally, it's the life, the eternal. He says specific life, the life eternal. Uh, we declare this to you, which was with the Father. Again, reflection of John 1.1, 1, 1, and the word was with God. Here he says he was with the Father and was manifested to us. It could be understood among us, to us, for us. But we saw him. He came to earth. God was manifested in the flesh. Uh, again, verse 3, that which we have seen. That's again, that, that idea, that perfect tense. Past action, completed, present result. We saw it. We are presently changed by what happened in the past. That's what happens when you, you meet Jesus, okay, whether like John saw him in the flesh, spent time with him, or when we meet the Lord through his word, you know, uh, we're, we're changed by it when we come into contact with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. But that which we have seen and heard, again, the perfect tense, we are announcing or reporting to you, or declaring to you, and then he tells us why. So that you might have fellowship with us. The word fellowship, that's that Word I think we know, most people know the Greek word koinonia. Uh, it sometimes gets battered around. It means fellowship, partnership, friendship. It actually can have that idea. Uh, in order that, so John's saying, in order that you might have koinonia, friendship, fellowship, that covenantal bond with us, he says, 
with the church and with the apostles, he's saying. Uh, and our fellowship, uh, truly our fellowship, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you can enter into this relationship of friendship, of partnership, a koinonia, you know, it's the word, sometimes we speak of koine Greek, you know, that's the Greek of the New Testament. Um, koine is related to this word koinonia, and we say, well, what, what, what's koine Greek? What's well, the common Greek? Everybody held that form of the language in common. It's like in America, we have this kind of a koine English, there's a common, the common English tongue, we would say. So koine means to hold things in common. So again, the idea of partnership, friendship, covenantal bond is there. And it's important, you know, in the church, God gives us friendships with people who are in covenant with him. You know, I was talking to somebody about, you know, when times are hard and there's difficult times in the life of a nation or of a family or an individual. You know, one fellow told me a long time ago, he said, choose your friends wisely. He said, do you honestly think a person that doesn't keep covenant with God will keep covenant with you? I thought, that's pretty important. That's a pretty important truth. We need to remember that. We need to be kind to everyone and we need to be covenant keepers no matter what others do. But we need to recognize our best friends, and that means the people we rely upon, should be the members of our family and of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can go beyond just the walls of your own local congregation, obviously. Uh, but we need to hold things in common. What, what are those great truths that we hold as friends, that covenantal bond? Well, it's the things we confess in the creed and the life that we live according to God's word. But John here is saying, I'm writing to you so that you can have this. So when we read this epistle... When we go through this, John's telling us what we need to know. It, it's kind of like the Christian life 101 is what he's going to set forth in this epistle. He's telling us, if, you know, I want you to have fellowship. Well, what does that mean? It means I want you to learn how to live and walk as Christians. And note when he writes here, when he says you, now in our modern English we lose the distinction between a singular pronoun and a plural one. You know, pronouns are like I, you, me, him, etc., Greek has a singular second-person pronoun, like the old English had thou, which means one person, and then they have a word that's like in old English, you. The King James actually is a good translation to use for reference on these kinds of things. Um, sometimes if you're talking to one person, you used to be, you'd use thee and thou, and then if it's plural, ye and you and your. John is writing, he uses a plural pronoun. It says that you might have fellowship. Now, in our great American individuality, we think, yeah, that's me personally, and it is true. It's distributively uh, understood. But he's talking to uh, believers using the plural pronoun. He says, so that you, if we were down south, we'd say, so that y'all might have fellowship. We have fellowship one with another. If you were in New Jersey, you'd say that you guys might have fellowship with each other. Okay? Um, somewhere in the Midwest, I think it's Ewan's. It's funny, we've tried to create a second-person plural pronoun because we lost it. So we have y'all, you-ins, uh, you know, I, don't, I could go on, but you get the point, okay? Um, I think y'all can be pretty well, you know, used to, to show that he's talking about more than one person. That's what John's doing here. He's writing to us as a church, as the body of Christ. He said, I want y'all to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Now, it's through the Holy Spirit, so John's not uh, excluding the third person of the Trinity here, but the Holy Spirit brings us into that relationship of friendship and partnership and fellowship with God. John said, I want you to have this. He says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And so, 
with his son, note that, Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know, the one I'm talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the second person of the Trinity, who was with the Father, who in time took to himself a true human nature when he became incarnate and was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived for us a sinless life on our behalf. Well, that's important, by the way, so that his righteousness as a man could then be imputed to us, placed to our account. So, you know, we often talk about the death of Christ, where he represented us and died the death that we deserved to die. He represented us on the He represented us during his lifetime also. And that's why when we were given his righteousness, it's imputed to us. His righteousness in always doing that which was well-pleasing to the Father is placed to our account. And so we are righteous in Jesus and our sins are forgiven in him. So John says, I want you to know this and to have this fellowship. And then in verse 4, we're just going to conclude there this morning. He says, and these things... Uh, we write to you, and so note that, when he says we there, someone said, well, was John writing, well, in fellowship of the apostles and of other Christians, those who are in fellowship. But John is saying, we're writing these things to you or to you all in order that your joy may be fulfilled, may be full, that it might, uh, actually the word there, that's where we get the word plenty, okay, um, we talk about plenary inspiration of Scripture, meaning that every aspect of it is inspired by God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it says in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, this is the word where we get the word plenty, the idea of full, so that your joy might be full. So John's not saying, I want you to know this because you know, you're going to have to just become stoics and recognize the misery of the Christian life and just you know, get a stiff upper lip and buckle down and do it. I suppose you could say that in some context. But John says, I'm writing this to you. Joy will be full. And the idea is it will be full to overflowing. Remember what David said? But when we use the word overflow, what comes to mind? Psalm 23. <laughs> My cup runneth over. That's the way David looked at his relationship with the Lord and God's goodness and abundance to him. Uh, Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, and we often forget that, don't we? The Christian life should be marked by unbridled joy, not foolish joy, but unbridled, meaning that our hearts should be happy in Jesus. I think I've shared with you uh, my neo-Puritan friend years ago who informed me that the word happy is based on the word happenstance and has to do with circumstances, and Christians shouldn't be joyful because of their circumstances, and therefore to be happy is wrong. And I was like, Really? And he was living it, too. He was miserable. Um, so I kind of think you're wrong on that. I, I understand, that, you know, there could be maybe a difference between happiness and joy. But it's okay to be happy in Jesus, to have that joy. You know, and sometimes people, when they see joy, they're like, oh, i got to deal with that. That brother, is all, he's all happy and beside himself. Surely he's going to fall into foolishness, so it's my job to go over there and quench the spirit and bring that guy back to sobriety and, you know, dourness so that he can... Show that he's truly pious like the rest of us Pharisees and make himself miserable and everybody around him. That's not what we're called to do, is it? Everybody here knows that. John writes, this is God the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle John. Why did he have this section of Scripture written in all of Scripture? So that your joy would be full, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of sickness, even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of feeling forsaken sometimes, but knowing that he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So John's going to tell us how to live the Christian life in a very practical, clear defined way. So this, this epistle, this letter that he wrote, is extremely important, but we need to recognize 
God gave us his word so that we would know him, love him, and be joyful in him. So may God bless us as we consider these great truths. John said, we saw him and we're changed. We heard him and we're changed. It's still with us. My hope and prayer that as we come in contact with God's word, and as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we enter into that fellowship so that we can tell others, by the work of the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the gospel, through the reading of scripture, by the hearing of God's word and believing it, I've met Jesus Christ. And yeah, that happened a while back historically in my life, but it's fresh today. I'm changed by it. And I want you to know about it. Note what John had, and this is where you see the Spirit of God working. John has this treasure, and what's he want to do with it? He wants to share it. I want you to have this. We want you to have this. We want you to have this. I'm writing this to you so that your joy may be full. That's God the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So we have great reason to thank God for this gift of joy that he's given to us and the fact that he's leading us into joy, not just in this life, but through all eternity. So it's okay to be happy, beloved. Praise God for Jesus, huh? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've given it to us and that it is true from the start to the finish. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would write it in our hearts and minds and that you would forgive us our sins, Lord, cleanse our hearts and grant to us, Lord, that we truly would know your joy, that you would restore to us the joy of salvation, that you would forgive our, all our sins and that you would help us to walk according to your word. Keep us in your love and grace, guide us and direct us, and Father, we give you all the thanks and the praise for calling us into this fellowship with you and your Son through the Holy Spirit. And we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.